This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You got a bad idea to start off with a little Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Uh, not exactly gambling, but uh, you do take your chances, apparently, when it comes to taking money. We're going to get into that with one of our favorite guests who has made his way to New York City. Usually joining us from Rochester on the phone is Doug Phillips, Chief Investment Officer at the University of Rochester. He's based up in Rochester, here with us, as I said, in New York City, as is Janet Lauren, our endowments reporter. She works for Bloomberg, covering all of the, all things related to education, higher education, especially when it comes to endowments. Doug, great to see you. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's talk about the trickiness, as it were, to raising money, uh, especially in an age where where that money comes from and who it comes from seems that much more important. Well, uh, this is an area that is of great interest to us at the University of Rochester because we're a private uh, school that relies on philanthropy and uh, I was just in your lobby <clears throat> looking at this Bloomberg Philanthropies yeah. document which is fantastic and it exemplifies what uh, we strive for which is a very strong alignment between donors and the institutions that they're supporting uh, it's very interesting that in the past year or so there have been at least three large cases of universities or colleges or other charities that have had misalignments uh, where the donors had expectations or the, the institutes didn't quite understand the donors. And uh, these resulted in some very embarrassing situations. And I, I don't have to go into those, but uh, I thought it's important to come on here as an investor uh, for university endowments and say mm -hmm. uh, we all should be careful in uh, looking at these gifts. And donors should be careful about the charities they give to as well. Well, I had a story a couple of years ago about the University of Chicago accepting a $100 million donation, and a couple of years later, the donors sued to get it back because they didn't think that the university had done what they said. What are the caveats when you're accepting a big donation like that, especially when it's not an alum, it's not a parent, you don't really have a strong affiliation to the school, but here, here's a lot of money. I think there's a, there's a little bit of a fog that develops when you have that, that large of a gift. And uh, it's diligence that uh, needs to be performed so the donor expectations are understood and the uh, institute or the universities understand uh, carefully what the donors are expecting so that you're, you're going to have good alignment, as I said earlier. Uh, and these lawsuits are embarrassing. Uh, you never want to have them. And uh, you know, just last year, there was a, a large public university that had a $21 million gift to name their law school. and. Uh, the donor exerted some influence and, and they returned it. Mm. And uh, of course, Epstein and, and others. So uh, just, I, I call it know your donors and uh, donors should know their charities so that you don't have these embarrassing situations. It takes a little bit of work, but it's, it's very important that it happen. You know, Janet, you've been covering a lot of these foundations and endowments from some of these large nonprofits. Really curious, when some of these issues come to light, what has been the backlash on them? 
Well, I think uh, donors are always interested in, um, you know, the, the history of the school. And, you know, I think there's always a caution, especially when it's out in the public, like the University of Chicago. It was in federal court documents, how much they spent on the announcement. It was something like a million dollars. People are a little, there's some trepidation when there's this negative feedback um, about these types of gifts. And, you know, I think that there's always a lasting impact on, on not only the dollar amount, but the publicity, whether it's good or bad. And so, uh, Doug, what do you do? I mean, obviously, the, there's just a certain amount of diligence, but it, it feels like maybe more diligence uh, might be needed. What What's the next level, I guess? Yeah, so uh, diligence, uh, for me, is not something that happens instantly. It takes yeah. time. That. Uh, you see a lot of gifts that come from board members of institutions, for example, and board members tend to know the places intimately well because they've seen uh, the financial and operations and academic uh, aspects of the place and they really uh, support it. Uh, so it's not always possible to become a board member, but <clears throat> you should think of it as a board member. So conducting uh, diligence, yeah. literally, on for, especially for these large gifts. And I think institutions have to expect donors to be more diligent in this environment where there have been so many mistakes. How often do institutions actually say no? Have you had an experience in that regard? Absolutely. Uh, I can't talk specifically about it, but uh, you have to be able to walk away from a gift that is not consistent with your core values, uh, that's going to put undue uh, restrictions on the use of the money, or in some way, uh, it can be a gift that eats. So it's a, it's a gift that looks good initially, but uh, it has long-term uh, costs associated with it that you, you just can't bear. Doug, synthesize this element with something like Varsity Blues, which we're still sort of seeing the, the aftermath of where obviously not all money is created equal, but and not all sort of paths of the money uh, is created equal. Well, here we're uh, intermingling uh, donations and, and admission decisions. Right. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not really uh, skilled in yeah. talking about that. But f frankly, it, it, uh, don donors have a, uh, I think large donors have some influence in admissions, but it just has to be disclosed and understood. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I've worked for private colleges and universities my entire career, and I know that it happens, but it has to be handled in the right way. Do you think it's changing, Janet? Oh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's always been understood that a uh, big donation, you know, maybe that there is some discussion, but, you know, the kids also got to be able to do the work right. as well. And, uh, you know, it's not good for the kid or the donor if uh, it's not the right fit and you're well above your head. Money. It's complicated. It's complicated. Always complicated. Especially when we get into the big dollars and the big donors. All right, Doug Phillips, great to see you in person. Chief Investment Officer up at the University of Rochester. That's where he's usually based. Uh, he's here with us in New York City today alongside Janet Lauren and Dallas reporter for Bloomberg. Joining Taylor Riggs and me here on a Wednesday edition of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Scott DeVoe here with me in New York City. He's got a couple stories already on the terminal, and the day is young because that's just how he rolls. Uh, one of the most intriguing ones, Scott, is 7-Eleven taking a look at Speedway. And by the way, this is a massive company. This is a $20 billion company? Yeah, I think um, when Marathon said they were going to spin it off, they said it was going to have an, uh, a value, an equity value about 15 to 18 billion. But the numbers that are being thrown around are way higher than that. Um, TDR Capital, for instance, um, wants to merge it with its EG group. And okay. they're talking about 26 billion in stock and cash. 
Wow. Yeah. So, so what's gone- the attraction here? Well, sorry, Taylor. <laughs> gigantic, gigantic spread yeah. uh, of of retail and gas stations, and these have been really hot in the last few years. Um, we were just talking about Brookfield, and that's what they've they've bought up a bunch in Canada. You know, there's this. Uh, there are several you know people that love these things because they're just cash businesses. And Scott, what do you, what else do we know about efficiencies? I'm always wondering when you bring two companies together, all they do is talk about some of the efficiencies. What else do they Synergies. want out of it? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, the uh, if they, if it does end up going either way, you know, they have they both have gigantic networks that they can put together, right? Yeah. So, um, EG Groups uh, has a, a, a group of uh, of retailers as well as obviously Seven Eleven, and so you know it's branding as much as breadth too. Right. All right. So, meanwhile, Carl Icahn, uh, he's back at it, and you know you spent a lot of your time looking uh, at the activists. Uh, talk about where where we are in all of this uh, Occidental. Madness. To use the technical <laughs> so we have term. to go all the way back yeah. in order to understand what he's talking about today. But the he put out a letter uh, to fellow shareholders today, speculating that the reason why Occidental uh, bought Anadarko in the first place was that there was a, a buyer that may have approached Occidental about potentially acquiring it, mm. and that the Anadarko deal was, in fact, a defensive maneuver in order to uh, avoid. Uh, being taken over itself. Scott, I wonder how shareholders react to this letter from activist Carl Icahn because shareholders were not involved or allowed to approve the vote between Occidental and Anadarko, right? Uh, sorry, I'm having a little bit of... Oh, okay. Um, no problem. Uh, actually, pop on those headphones. <laughs> I should have uh, told you to uh, do that. Oh, there um, we go. Jason, uh, you can just repeat my question to him. <laughs> sort of how, how, how shareholders respond to this, um, given that shareholders were not allowed to approve that deal when it was originally formed. Yeah, well, I think that's the big that's the big thing, and I think Carl thinks that there are other shareholders who believe that this deal wasn't the best uh, that wasn't the best way forward for Occidental, and surely you can see the stock price since the deal closed. Um, there was a lot of value destroyed, about thirty billion dollars worth of value, and um, that's you know that's going to resonate with some of the other shareholders. What else do you hear in the in the world of activism these days? I mean, I always like to hear from Uncle Carl. Uh, <laughs> is it a is it an active activist uh, year so far? Well, I'll tell you, it's the uh, it's the nomination window now. Right. So that's when all of the activists, uh, if they're going to get into a fight, if they're going to get into a proxy fight, have to put forth their nominees right now. And so, yes, it's very busy. Um, which you were saying earlier, we had two scoops on the terminal today. I mean, it's been it's been very busy. Yeah. Yeah. And so is there sort of a sector or is there an area that feels like it's especially ripe? I mean, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea, you know, the, the deal we started talking about with 7-Eleven and, and Marathon. I mean, that's just a good old fashioned sort of retail slash transportation play in some ways. Well, also, I guess it, what it is is breaking up businesses yes, as well. Good point. And so I think Marathon was in particular, I think it, it originally wanted to spin off uh, Speedway into an IPO, but have now, you know, because of the the multiples that they might be getting from these potential buyers has decided to look at, at selling it as well. 
And I wonder how busy the activist investor community has been because I was talking over here to our San Francisco audience, you'd Elliott Management, take a stake in SoftBank, for example. Do yeah. you see this sort of this time of year ramping up? Yeah, that's a, that's what I was saying. It's it's this is where we're going to start seeing what the big fights are during this season. So you know, SoftBank, it seems like it's kind of an amicable yeah. relationship. I think that they've a come friendly to, activism. Yeah, there. I think they've come to the conclusion that SoftBank has some issues. Yeah, um, I think SoftBank has <laughs> come, come to the conclusion they have some, some issues. issues. Yeah. so they have some common ground that they that they're dealing with, and uh, hopefully they'll find some some value there. I was looking actually on the terminal, and it looks like uh, Elliot's already. About, made about nine percent on its investment wow. already. So, all right. Well, that's certainly been one that's captured our attention. We know you've got much more to do. Probably even today, Scott Devoe. Uh, love your scoops. Deals reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, little Billy Joel to bring this one in. Matter of trust, which. Uh, certainly seem to take a turn in this case. It's one of my favorite stories in this upcoming edition of the magazine. Joe Doe is one of the co-writers. He's here with me in New York City. He's a metals and mining reporter for Bloomberg, alongside Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. Taylor Riggs joining us from San Francisco, of course, as well. So, Joe, tell us about JSW. They were all in their CEO on President Trump. And then that took a turn. Right. John Hritz is CEO of JSW Steel here in the U.S. They've got a couple of mills that they run, and they got a promise of a billion dollars from the parent company in India for investment into new facilities here in the U.S. Uh, I was sitting down at a conference in Chicago over a year ago and heard him say basically he credited all of this to the Trump administration passing the tariffs to give him this investment. Uh, fast forward to August of last year, and suddenly JSW was suing the Trump administration because they weren't getting exemptions to import steel, and, and then kind of the story builds out from there. So go ahead and build it out. Like, what, what were the, you know, what, what does this mean for a company? You know, you're gonna, your, your business model totally hinges on the ability to get exemptions in this case. Right you're stuck in a limbo if you can't, right? right? And that's basically where they find themselves. Exactly, exactly. So JSW Steel was expecting, well, you know, the, the whole business model was built around importing steel from its parent in India and then re-rolling that steel into pipes and, and plate and anything else used in cars and infrastructure and mm -hmm. whatnot, right? Uh, so when the tariffs passed, they said, listen, um, we're going to invest a billion dollars to build out these new mills, which is, Part create of the jobs. point, create jobs, yeah, right? Here in America. Here in America, increase capacity, do exactly what the Trump administration said they wanted the tariffs to have happen. In the meantime, give us an exemption while we're importing that Indian steel because we don't have the steel capacity. So let us import it for free. And then in the meantime, over two years, that investment will be done. We'll stop importing from India and we'll be set. We'll be putting out jobs, you know, we'll be putting out uh, steel all over the country. And the Commerce Department under uh, Wilbur Ross said, no, we're not giving you uh, that exemption. And in fact, you're going to continue to build out this capacity and spend that money that you said you would. And in the meantime, pay your fair share just like everybody else. At which point you sue. At which point you say, <laughs> even though I like sue, the tariff, yeah. I'm going to sue you. Right. And how's that going? Uh, 
Well, they're they're still waiting to hear back what happens. Um, you know, John told us in the interview. I mean, John Ritz has been very open and very happy to talk to us about this thing. In fact, I you know spoke to him just earlier, you know, yesterday, and he said, you know, make sure you're talking about the fact that we're suing the Trump right. administration, right? And 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 this is a guy who still supports Donald Trump. So it's one of those interesting. He's it's kind of a complex situation, right? You would say, oh, well, now he's against them. But he's not right. He's not out there saying that the Trump administration has done wrong and that they, you know, the tariffs are bad. He still thinks they were fine. He just wants them to be able to have this this exemption. Right. Joe, I'm so curious to know how other steel companies as well are reacting. Is this a JSW steel issue or a industry wide issue? Right, Taylor. I mean, th- this is a good point, right? So somebody has to object to the exclusions that they were putting in. And we, you know, we saw that U.S. Steel and, and Nucor, who are two of the biggest producers in the United States, had been objecting to these. We reached out to both companies. U.S. Steel um, said they had no comment. Nucor actually said, listen, a lot of the exemptions people have been asking for are larger than the market that there actually is in the United States. So, you know, there's kind of a two way street here. Like sometimes people ask for more exemptions than is, is, is necessary for them to have. And so there are, you know, other tricks that are being used in this whole exemption process that people have to look out for. Um, But, you know, this has been kind of the game for, for a while now, which is U.S. Steel and, and listen, anybody, I mean, listen, it's not just U.S. Steel and Nucor. It's a whole host of companies that are objecting to these things. Um, It just so happens in the case of JSW, those are two of the names that were out there. And what are the issues here, Joe? It seems that it seems, and, and keep me honest here, is that you have a commerce department that maybe isn't totally equipped to handle all right. of the aspects oh, they of were this flooded chain right. by requests for Situation. exemptions. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And, and we've known this for a while, right? Like the, the commerce department is seemingly understaffed. And most of the people in the industry that, that I've been talking to for, for years now are still complaining about the fact that they, they don't feel like the commerce department spending enough time on the exclusion requests. They're either excluding things that shouldn't have been or they're giving exclusions to things that shouldn't have been. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a producer or consumer, everybody is complaining right now about this process. This is just, and this is a great example of yeah. that, right? And, and, and I think that's what we were trying to tell, you know, part of the thing we were trying to tell here was this is a good example of the steel tariffs on so many different levels through tariffs and supply chain and companies and 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 people who are on both sides yeah you know of this thing well and as you and as you point out in the story it's really about a, a part of america that is at the core of this whole political argument right well, I mean, and it's been hurting for a long yeah. time right and and yeah. in many ways this, the tariffs were viewed as like oh finally something even more that can help bring this industry back and yet you know, it doesn't seem like it's really gone that way yet, maybe. Right. Because that's the thing. They say, if we get this, we're gold. Right. And, and, and Joel, you know this because you, you guys are doing these stories week in and week out, which is, at the end of the day, businesses just want stability and certainty. Right. Yeah. And the steel industry is no different. And you hear guys all the time saying, just tell us what something is and we'll just get back to work. But in the meantime, there's way too many questions in the marketplace. Taylor, Joe, you, t- yeah, Joe, you talk a lot about stability. Did phase one of a trade deal bring any stability or is that a soybean issue and not a steel issue? 
actually, Taylor, um, there was a, a small bit in there that required manufacturing purchases by China that, that is so wild that it included iron and steel. And what a lot of the iron and steel uh, industry were telling me early on, which was they were, they were saying, we, don't, we weren't aware that this was going to be coming out. And so they were scrambling to find out what it meant and how much was actually going to be purchased. It, it's still a bit uncertain. Um, but what a lot of them are kind of uh, shifting to is saying, well, phase two is supposed to include more details around steel and, and, and metals. So hopefully that will bring something about. Phase one did at least give them a, a, a feeling that phase two will bring some, some real certainty and some real change. And uh, even Caterpillar, right, saying, well, we're looking forward to phase two. Right. Maybe this will bring a little bit more kind of, you know, the norm before all the tariffs went into place uh, with China uh, back into the fold. All right. 30 seconds left. Uh What's next? It plays through the courts? What happens? Yeah, we wait to find out whether or not JSW wins their suit. Um, and, you know, and then there's, for them and everybody else, there's the constant, you know, back and forth with government and, and trying to talk to commerce and figuring out what they can and can't get. Right. It's They have to go back every year for exemptions, right? So, you know, at the very least, they at least get their day in court once a year. And in the meantime, you know, they've had to kind of like shorten the work week yeah. to make do, right? So it, it has consequences. Absolutely. Unintended ones, perhaps. Yeah. It's a great, great story. You know, one of these that really takes you there. And uh, we should point out some nice color. Uh, it, this was uh, where the Deer Hunter, uh, the movie The Deer Hunter, was right, yeah, filmed, in the, right? In the Ohio factory, yeah. What's it called? Mingo? Mingo Junction. Mingo Junction. All right, check it out. It is online today in the upcoming issue, excuse me, of Bloomberg this week. Joe Doe wrote it, Metals Mining Reporter for Bloomberg. He was here with Joel Weber. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. And that, of course, was Bernie Sanders, Democratic candidate for president, uh, seeking the nomination for the Democratic Party, speaking last night in New Hampshire, a victory party, as it were, as he edged out Pete Buttigieg to win the New Hampshire primary. Uh, Elizabeth Warren coming in fourth, Amy Klobuchar coming in third, and, uh, of course, Joe Biden uh, not performing well. So what does that mean to Wall Street. Well, sort of a provocative column, I should say. Uh, today on the Bloomberg, Nir Kesar uh, joins us, uh, or Kesar, excuse me, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, founder of Unison Advisors. That's an asset management firm. He joins us down in our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. All right. So, What's the premise here? Wall Street, they're sort of okay with Bernie Sanders? What? <laughs> well, I, th I think the narrative around Sanders, uh, clearly, I would say, is that he'll, he'll, he'll wreck the stock market if he becomes elected president. And um, I think that's, that's driven uh, mainly by you know, the fact that he's a socialist, admitted, self-admittedly uh, a socialist. Um, and also, I think remnants of what happened last year when Warren, Elizabeth Warren surged in the polls, uh, the market sort of stumbled right around that time. And I think people found uh, connecting tissue there. Um, but, you know, I argue in this column today that I think, I think this deserves a reexamination. And basically the gist is that 
I think for Bernie Sanders to be able to afford the various things that he wants, you know, college, health care, housing for all, the Green New Deal, he's going to have to ramp up uh, spending, it seems to me, um, even after taking into account higher taxes. And in general, more spending, more fiscal spending is good for the economy. It's good for um, uh, corporate earnings. And, and that's, I think, in, that might prop up the, um, or continue to prop up the stock market. Nir, I think one of the points that you made early on in your columns that I liked is one reason not to fear Sanders is a lot of his um, socialist policies, frankly, wouldn't be enforced because they can't pass uh, both the House and then the Senate. How much of that is also uh, giving perhaps the market some relief that there are some moderates that would control perhaps extremes on both sides and then in turn help prevent a crash of the stock market? Well, I think that's so interesting, Taylor, because, you know, the the things that um, people fear most about Sanders, it seems to me, you know, nationalizing broad swaths of our economy and so on. I just don't think he's going to have the legislative muscle or the popular support to be able to do that. Um, but he will, I think, be able to do uh, something, you know, more modest, make more modest change that will require more spending, thus the potential lift to the economy. So I, I actually think that it's sort of the middle case. The, the middle case is he will do things um, that perhaps are more uh, than a Republican president would do, but probably nowhere near uh, what people on on the, on the sort of left of the far left of the spectrum, hope he might do. All right. So, Nir, you also uh, name check both a proponent of and the theory itself, one of our favorite topics here modern monetary theory. Stephanie Kelton, she's been a guest on this program. She was part of the Bloomberg 50 celebration that we had uh, in New York City. MMT, Bernie's a fan, right? Yeah, I mean, I, and I can see why, you know, because MMT basically posits that uh, as long as inflation is in check, the government can take on a lot, a lot more uh, fiscal spending and, and debt than I think previously believed. Um, that's certainly the MMTers' argument, um, and that's one way. If you, you know, if you're scratching your head and asking yourself, how are we going to pay for the various things that Sanders is proposing? MMT has an answer for you. Um, the question, of course, is, you know, we haven't really tried it. So the question is, what's the impact of that? Right. And, you know, that's that I think is anyone's guess. Because deficits basically, you know, the the very short version of MMT is deficits don't matter. Right. Yeah. Deficits don't matter. I think if you had to say it in short form, deficits don't matter as long as inflation is in check. Right. Once inflation becomes a problem, then you have to start, you know, reexamining how much you're spending. Do you really think that the markets would shrug off these ballooning deficits that we've increasingly seen over the years? Well, you know, that's that's interesting because, you know, the question is, how does the how does the market the market ultimately has to balance two factors, right? It loves earnings growth, which is helped. uh, You know, earnings growth is is fed to some extent by fiscal spending. On the other hand, it doesn't like a ballooning debt. Or you could imagine uh, that at some point it'll say we have too much debt relative to our annual output, you know, whether that's GDP, however you want to measure it. Um, The question is whether, though, to connect to Jason's question is whether MMT will come along and sort of change the market's mind about that. You know, the market at the end of the day is just a a consensus view. What happens if MMT changes the consensus view and the market decides, you know what, it doesn't care so much about debt anymore. It really just cares about earnings growth. And that's really the proposition that I'm asking readers to think about. Is in that scenario, you know, Bernie Sanders might be a great friend of the stock market. And so, net net near, do you think the market likes a moderate more than 
a more liberal and a, a democratic socialist? Is the, is it just sort of rationalizing this at a time when we sort of jokingly, but not so jokingly said this, the market wants reasons to buy? You know, it's, it's funny because um, I guess what you have to ask yourself is what is the market telling us in this moment? Yeah. And I think Good the, point. I think the conventional wisdom is that the market is telling us that they don't like Bernie's chances of winning. Because the supposition is, if they did think Bernie was going to win, the market would freak out. But, but, but I guess I'm throwing out an alternative hypothesis. Maybe, maybe the market is looking at Bernie and saying, you know what? If Bernie wins, this might not be a train wreck for the market. Right. Um, and so that's where the difficulty is, is, is discerning what the market is telling us in this moment, I think, is tricky. Right. Well, we even think back to that immediate reaction when Donald Trump got elected, right? Like mm-hmm. the market right. just absolutely tanked and then sort of came back and look where we are today. I mean, as you say, the market is a, a signal of the sort of collective feeling. All right. Nir Kassar is columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also the founder of Unison Advisors. That's an asset management firm. He joined us from our 991 studio down in the nation's capital. All right. So I feel like we're doing a little bit of a special edition of Business Week Economics today because we got a special guest, Taylor Riggs, here with me in New York City. That's Joe Kalish, Chief Global Macro Strategist for Ned Davis Research. He's based down in Venice, Florida. He has gamely been trudging through a rather rainy, chilly New York City, probably reminding him every step of the way why he lives in Venice, Florida. Anyway, it's great to have you here uh, on the back end of your trip. So what's the message here? What does the bond world make of this uh, topsy-turvy world we're living in? So I think there are a couple of points. Obviously, um, what's been top of mind for most investors over the you know um, last few weeks here has been the coronavirus. And uh, what we did, uh, Jason, is we ran a what we call an event study. Mm-hmm. So we looked back at uh, six prior cases of when the World Health Organization declared a global health emergency. And so we went all the way back to 2003. And what we found is that the financial markets tend to uh, you know, sell off in terms of risk assets, tend to sell off, treasury uh, bonds uh, prices tend to rise, going into the announcement that there's a global health emergency. And, and then we see a reversal. So you know, we're, we're not making any comments about the economic impact, but you know, the financial markets look forward. Yeah. And what we see here is that when you finally make that announcement, there's a realization on the part of governments that we really got to do something to get this under control. And then the other part to that is usually the governments are implementing some stimulus, like we've seen from, from China now. You're going to you know, ease monetary policy and provide some fiscal policy. So the economic outlook going forward down the road looks better. So I think that's one of the things. And so far, the financial markets are playing out almost exactly like we would have expected them to. Joe, as we talk about the coronavirus and impacts on the economy, I want to fold it into your world of how you're thinking about bonds. We interviewed a guest yesterday who was taking a look at bond-like equities because they behave defensively. My thought, though, is isn't that what the bond portfolio is supposed to do when the equity portfolio should behave like an equity? How are you thinking about that as you take a look at a world that is perhaps getting a little bit more defensive as, as some of the fears about this coronavirus start to trickle in? Uh, yeah, again, I think the, the fears are more 
economic short term, and we see those with the impacts on the commodity markets. But again, as I was saying, you know, the financial markets are looking forward. I think what's a little bit a little bit different about bonds is you could probably make a case that fundamentally. Uh, bond yields should be rising if the economic activity is going to improve, particularly in the second half of the year. You know, maybe in, uh, we should be thinking a little bit more about inflation longer term. Uh, you know, the central banks are all on hold. But what we also see going on is this wall of money coming into yeah. bonds. Uh, and, and it's from every corner. So uh, one of the things that I've, I've been noting here is the inflows into bond mutual funds and ETFs. And I estimate that in January, we saw net inflows of $71.2 billion. I mean, that's a massive amount of money. That's, we've never seen that kind of flow uh, in before. And, and I think, Taylor, one of the reasons why we've seen that is because there's been rebalancing. Everybody did so well in their uh, stock portfolios last year that some of them are rebalancing out of stocks and into bonds. And we've seen some of that with um, you know, net outflows from equity mutual funds are about $21 billion in January. But then also we have all these other categories of bond buyers. Um, so uh, the foreigners picked up their, their bond buying beginning of the year. Um, based on custody holdings, we've had $36 billion of inflows um, from, from, from outside the U.S. The Fed stopped selling its securities. The banks have been big buyers. They haven't been making a lot of loans. They have to put their money somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, they're... they're their purchases are, are up, you know, eight or nine percent. So uh, then how distorted are the markets then from this wall of money that's coming in? Are bonds at fair value? So, no, we think, you know, fair value is uh, on the 10 year Treasury is, is closer to, you know, one point nine percent rather than, you know, where we are today, you know, 160 range. Um, and also, I also have been uh, focusing on the German bonds and European yields because they let us down and have been leading us all the way back. I've got fair value of 10 basis points on bonds instead of, you know, minus 38 or so today. So, yeah, fundamentally, we should be higher. But because of all this wall of money, we're seeing yields lower than where they should be. All right. So biggest worry at this point, especially as you've been meeting with uh, yeah. all your folks around here, uh, getting it getting the pulse of New York City, 30 seconds, what do you think? Yeah, there's two things. So shorter term, the risk is that we're just going up again here in risk assets and stocks. And and, and maybe we'll get a little bit too frothy. It's, we're not quite there yet, you know, mm -hmm. but maybe we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But longer term, I think one of the things that drove the entire decade of the, you know, 2010s uh, was the fact that inflation was falling short of its goal. And I, you know, I'm looking at things like unit labor costs up 2.4% last year. The labor market continues to get tighter. Uh, I, I just don't see how we're really going to backtrack on that. And that's something I'm worried about longer term. Yeah, interesting. Uh, there's an interesting piece uh, in the upcoming edition of uh, Bloomberg Business Week about inflation the role that it plays. So interested to get your thoughts on that when it comes out. All right. Joe Kalish, Chief Global Macro Strategist for Ned Davis Research, excuse me, based down in Venice, Florida, here with us in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. This is the drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
All right, and it's time for the drive to the close. Bill Page back with us, Senior Portfolio Manager at Essex Investment Management based up in Boston. Here with us in New York City today. Here with me, I should say, Taylor Riggs out in San Francisco, co-hosting with me for a little while longer before uh, she heads off to do some television. Bill, great to see you. Thanks for having me. All right, so we love talking to you because sort of clean tech and all of that sort of comes with it continues to come more and more to the fore. And I'm gonna ask you something similar to I think what I asked you last time, which is, why? Why now? What? Why? Why is this finally sort of catching attention? Well, I think it's uh, catching attention because of the fact that the technologies are becoming more and more viable. So, if you think about things like LED lighting, solar energy, I mean, the bulk of net new energy capacity last year was renewables. So, the fact of the matter is, even in the absence of any sort of government regulation, the technologies make sense. Mm-hmm. They're cheaper, and they allow companies that are adopting clean tech uh, to get a good return on their investment. Bill, I hate to be the person that asks this, but I I try to ask it, you know, when I can. Frankly, the returns haven't really kept up. I mean, everyone has been touting ESG strategies and solar and wind and electric vehicles, um, but the returns haven't really been there. When do we get to that point where investing in these companies also makes sense from a return perspective? Well, I think, uh, so when you think about clean tech in the listed equity markets, the vast majority of what we do is in the small and mid-cap space, so close to 70% of our portfolio is small mid-cap. And so if you think about mid-cap industrials where you have a lot of exposure, those stocks have been held back for three to five years because we've been in sort of an anemic spending cycle for for those industrial sectors. And then if you think about what's been going on with non-OECD economic growth, that's been uh, pretty weak as far as commodity prices also. But we've noticed a pretty significant change in the last eight months where the stocks have grown up, we're past clean tech 2.0, more rational capital utilization, more mature companies, better use of capital. And so we're seeing these companies really start to expand their margin growth and their profitability. All right. So let's talk about some names that you like so that people can sort of get a sense of what these companies are and, and, and what they do. Cornet Digital. Uh, is one that I think you're invested in. What do they do? So when you think about the garment industry, so they do uh, digital screen printing from the garment industry. So the garment manufacturing industry is 8% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So it's absolutely astonishing. That's greater than all maritime shipping and uh, flights combined globally. So if you wear a T-shirt and jeans, it's going to take us 13 years to drink the water that we utilize in the manufacturing of those two products alone. So what Cornet does is they help garment manufacturers. They have 1,000 customers globally. They're a mid-cap company with digital screen printing. So fast fashion is is popular, but we're holding on to our clothes uh, half as long as we used to. And so we need to do way more with less in the garment industry. So Cornet's digital uh, screen printing technology is safe ink, no PFAS, Mm -hmm. so so no emerging contaminants that can get into the water supply. And it enables the uh, customers to use 95% less water 50% 50% less energy. Yeah. So that's a key example of, I believe, a clean technology that's sort of off the radar screen. I'm so interested in in that specifically, and Carol and I spend a ton of time talking to folks around that business, uh, in part because, and I wonder if this is a theme that you see too, you and I have talked about this before, I have teenagers, and you know they are 
especially and markedly interested in things like their carbon footprint when it comes to their clothes. And I don't think they're, I, I would love to think they're such geniuses and, you know, so forward thinking, but I do think it's a generational thing that that folks are thinking more about this, especially younger folks. Well, this gets uh, to Taylor's question. Um, when the, the tipping point, I think, is not here quite yet, but it's pretty close to being here. And the fact of the matter is consumers are really thinking about the resource efficiency of their purchases. Mm -hmm. And so that's really leading. And also, companies, we get into, we're not capital starved, there's a lot of capital, yeah. but the companies that are investing in clean technology want to do way more with less. So industrial robotics, asset tracking technology for trucking routes, all this is what we define as clean technology. Mm -hmm. So it's so much more than just renewable energy. Bill, I'm out here in San Francisco, so I love that your notes really focuses on the technology behind all of this. What inning are we in in, ter in terms of looking at the role that technology is playing in some of these sustainable efforts? So we have a running debate amongst my peer group in the clean tech world. Um, and so I'd say we're, we're in the early innings of this revolution. And so we're in the late innings of solar, we're in the late innings of LED lighting. Um, but we're in the early innings of smart materials. The electric vehicle revolution is here. When you think about bio ingredients for products, that's a mega trend right now. Mm -hmm. When you think about Beyond Meat and others ingredients, that's first inning on those technologies. So um, some innings were late and a lot of innings were quite early. So the EV revolution is something that is becoming faster and faster. We're, seeing, we're not seeing it in the model unit growth of EVs, but we are seeing it in developments as the OEMs, the auto uh, manufacturers start to line up and spend on battery capacity, et cetera. So. And do you worry that some of these sort of subcategories to some extent are a little bit, for lack of a better term, sort of faddish, you know, that people will be like, well, maybe I'm not so concerned about that. Or is this such a powerful mega trend that it's going to sort of pick up kind of everything in its wake? I think it's the latter. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I mean, fads, you could consider um, bio-ingredients to be a fad, yeah. but when you think about the input costs of bio-ingredients, um, Nike is now developing sustainable uh, shoe wear where the inputs are sustainable and the price parity is at parity with fossil fuel inputs. Mm. So we, we don't invest in fads, we invest in megatrends, we invest in technologies that are, that are commercially viable. Right, all right. Really good to catch up with you. Uh, always enjoy it. Bill Page, thoughtful conversation. Senior Portfolio Manager at Essex Investment Management based up in Boston, here with me in New York City today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.